0: I don't believe that the core value that I bring to this process is the technology. Yes, we use very high end equipment and we put together a beautiful final product. But I think that the true value that a competent life story biographer is going to bring is the experience that is required, the sensitivity that's required to understand how to handle a person's life. Welcome to the Life Story Coach Podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips, and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing with your host, Amy Woods Butler. Hi,
1: guys, welcome to the show. This is where we talk about growing our life story business clients come to us because they want to create a book, a video, an audio, some creative project where they can help clients share their life stories with their family and friends and with future generations. Now, I mentioned the video projects. Every time that I open the show, and finally I got somebody on to talk about videos. So, this is going to be part two of my interview with Rich Pult. Um He had so much great stuff to share that I decided to split it into two. If you haven't heard part one yet, you can go over to thelifestorycoach.com and look for episode 55. Today, we're picking up where we left off from that conversation, and today we're going to hear a little bit more about what happens in phase two and phase three of Rich's projects. So So he divides each of his projects into three discrete phases, and he talks a little bit about the work of phase two, which is actually sitting down with the storytellers and doing the recorded interview, and phase three, which is the editing, and a little bit more. So I hope that you find this interesting. I know that I certainly did. It's always fun to hear about how other people do their business in creating these life story projects. So without further ado, here's the continuation of my conversation with Rich Polt. You've done that first phase of the production, phase one, and now you're in phase two. You come in and what does what the layout look like with the equipment and who is there?
0: Okay, so typically we're going to be filming in the person's home um, whenever possible. There's a few, been a few exceptions, but, um, you know, so they're in a, a space that is going to be inherently comfortable for them. And this is a, I have to say, this is always a a fine balancing act because it's a busy day. It's a full day, right? We get there early. We need about 90 minutes to set up for the first shoot. We may have to move around Mm -hmm. a little bit of furniture and get things straight. And we're we're doing things like turning off ringers and, you know, and in the meantime, they're going to be getting ready. So for somebody that might have a routine, they might like things in a particular order, like There's this aspect of disrupting the flow of their, of their lives. And with, again, with an older population, you need to constantly be, be like striking the balance between doing what we need to, but also paying attention very closely to their needs so that it's a rewarding and enriching experience for them. The worst thing that could happen is they have a bad experience. So we go in, we set up. We might do one interview that lasts, let's say, an hour. I always try to film the the more loquacious spouse first um, because inevitably things run over. So I like to have that one done. We take 30 minutes to set up a different shoot. You know, I I like to change angles. And, you know, if the the husband's camera right, I want the wife to be camera left, right, or or vice versa. Um, And so then we do the other shoot. That's an hour. We'll break for lunch. Um, and then we set up the third shoot, which is the joint shoot. Um, I'm working with, with really talented documentary videographers, cinematographers. Um, and so, you know, they taught me things about framing a shot, about the angles on a wall, um, about, uh, lighting. Um, you know, something as, as simple as placement of things in the background. I'm, you know, I'm always looking for something significant to place in the background. So it's, it's an involved day. And then, of course, after the filming is done, we like to get what we call B-roll footage. That's the additional footage that you might see on the, on the showcase videos when you're hearing the person's voice, right? But you might see them engaging in an activity or pictures on their wall. And so we collect all that while they're in their home, too. So it's not uncommon that we'll arrive at 7.30 a.m. and and say goodbye at 5.30 p.m.
1: And this is always taking place on one day? Um,
0: We try to do it in one day. Again, uh, when you're trying to keep the cost of this manageable, you you have to try to stick to certain kind of benchmarks, and when when I shoot with a videographer for one day, that's That's coming out of my bottom line, right? I'm paying that videographer Mm -hmm. as a contractor, and he or she is, you know, they need to maintain a certain rate. And if they're going to be coming in for a second day, then that's going to drastically change my cost on the product. And so I have found that whenever possible, let's do it in a single day. If it's not possible, we will certainly not force it. We'll do two days, even three days. But those costs in some way are going to be passed along to the client.
1: When you're doing the filming, who is there? You're the one sitting and doing the interviewing? Is that is that right? Um, and then you have somebody manning the camera and Is anybody else in the room with you besides the storyteller? In all
0: cases, there's going to be at least two of us. Um, Up until this point, I've done most of the interviewing. As I said, we're starting to expand the team now. And so I have other producers that are doing that as well, which is amazing. Um, There's going to be a videographer in the room. Um, Those are always going to be the case. Um, But now, as the team is expanding, we sometimes will have an assistant producer in the room who is there just to be another set of eyes. They help out in terms of, you know, just taking care of minutia during the day. They're also taking notes and listening for moments in the interview that might be important when putting together a showcase reel or pulling together archival uh, images and things on the back end. Um, so yeah, but I try not to bring in more than three people because beyond that, it starts to feel like a like a set, and and it starts to feel really uncomfortable. I think for for the interviewees,
1: right. And then, can you talk about the stage three?
0: Yeah. So stage three, you know, as I like to say, that's that's when uh, they're off the hook, and and all the heavy lifting is on us. Um, uh, if it's so early on, I became proficient in um, Adobe Premiere Pro, which is the editing software. I wanted. I know that I have very specific, um, tastes and I can be somewhat persnickety and detail oriented, and I'm sure I could be a real pain in the butt for, for an editor. And so I knew that I wanted to be able to make changes that I saw fit, um, without having to, you know, call or email an editor every time. Oh, can you, you know, chop off that one second? Can you fade this out a little earlier? That wasn't going to be healthy. Um. And, uh, so the very first one that I did, the very first one, first of all, I was making no money, so I couldn't have afforded to pay an editor, but I, I basically taught myself Adobe Premiere Pro and did this. And I spent 170 hours making, making that movie. Um, I mean, I was still doing PR. I was like doing this on the side. I was doing it at nights and at wow. weekends, but it. Throwing myself in the deep end on the editing side, I think for at least for me was the right call. Um, I, I'm not going to try to teach myself videography, but having a working knowledge on editing was wonderful. I still I still rely so much on the editing team, uh, Jordan Freeman being my primary editor, um, because there's just going to be things that, that he brings to it with his eye that I wouldn't catch. Um, but anyway, so that was really helpful. Um, on the editing side... Um, and, and this is constantly evolving. When you have four hours of raw footage, that's a lot of time. And you need to create a process that's going to mitigate or minimize the amount of times you have to watch through that footage. And so we've gotten to a mm. point now where we kind of have the, like a, a series of passes. And in one pass, we're going to first sync up all the footage and kind of get a clean working timeline. Then in another pass, we're going to drop the photos and B-roll and any other personal media assets onto the timeline in appropriate pa- places. And so, you know, we've labeled all of those items, um, you know, the digital files um, with years and the people so that we know where to drop those on the timeline.
1: Okay, wait, hold on one sec. Is this the project that you're talking about? That's the core mm-hmm. project that's going to end up being a yes. three-hour project? Okay, yeah,
0: okay yeah. go ahead. Yeah, we might have 200 photos that go on Onto that timeline. Now, 200 photos dispersed over a course of three hours is not a lot. Um, you know, maybe a photo here, a photo there, but it's still, it still creates a little bit more interest. It's something visual, and I think it's a nice touch. But, you, you know, one out of place photo is going to be a lot of extra work because they're going to call you up and they're going to say, oh, by the way, Uncle Frank is shown, mm. and that's mm. actually, we're talking about, you know, Uncle James. And okay, boom, now I got to change that photo and retranscode that whole file. And so that's a lot. So the details, the devil is in the details and you want to get that right. So there's that pass. Um, one of the things I've talked about a couple of times is archival production. Um, and so what that is, is um, let's say um, I'm, this happened a couple of months ago. Somebody was talking about their birth. I said, do you know any stories from the day you were born? And he said, well, not from the day I was born, but my mom told me that there was a terrible snowstorm between my birth and up to my bris. And, uh, you know, for your listeners that don't know what a bris is, that's a circumcision. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, what we did was we went back, you know, I subscribed to newspapers.com, I subscribed to Ancestry. And on newspapers.com, we found a headline from the date that would have been right before his bris, talking about the terrible snowstorms in Baltimore, right? And so that's, that's an example. We never could have collected that on the front end, but those are kind of the special additional moments that we pull into these projects that make them feel more documentary in nature. And we might have 100 assets, archival assets, that go into those legacy film when it's done. We're talking newspaper headlines. Things from Ancestry, ship manifestos, you know, World War II draft cards. Um, We can can find videos and things online that we can pull in. Stock photography, right? All of that stuff. Um, Somebody was telling an interesting story about Jacqueline Kennedy. And so, boom, pulled in a beautiful photo of Jacqueline Kennedy. Um, So that's another pass on the timeline. Um, And then, you know, the final touches, um, you know, it always ends with me doing a, a, a complete watch through of the movie in which I am checking for any final errors as well as the chapter markings, right? Because ultimately, this will be presented with chapter markings. You don't want to just give somebody four hours of a movie, they need to be able to navigate it. So I'm watching through and trying to pick out when the sensible breaks are going to be.
1: And then is there any kind of supplementary um, uh, written information? Like, do you do any, you know, like, chapter one contains such and such, like an, an index to go with it?
0: Um, a, a very cursory one. I mean, we'll hand people, we'll hand people a folder that has the, uh, the SD card that has all of the files on it, all the file information, another sheet that has, we deliver everything online. So we create custom websites through the back end of the acknowledged media oh. page that then link to a password protected Vimeo page. So everything is done digitally, and so people need to have links, passwords, all of that, and then just a listing of the chapter marks. We don't expand on that at that point, no. But it's mm-hmm. funny you mention it because someone recently was asking me, you know, is there a coffee table version of what you do? And no, there's not a coffee table version at this point. But I, yeah, at some point, I would love to. Yeah, you know, like future
1: plans, Rich. Right?
0: right? I mean, there's <laughs> nothing. You know, for all of this time and energy and work. There's nothing less sexy than giving something to somebody in the cloud.
1: (laughs) Right. 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 Yeah. The presentation. Right. Right. I can see that. Yeah. Well, I know know some people do, um, uh, they'll have like a little thumb drive or, you know, SD card or something and they'll, uh, there's even... Um, custom-made boxes, you know, so it, it almost looks like a jewelry box that people will put them in to so that they'll have something tangible that they can present the client with. But yeah, uh, but the world is not going in that direction. So I, I could see where the challenge would be for that. Yeah. Okay. So um, I, I have a few questions. Um, one is regarding what you do. So your primary role, it sounds like, is, um, well, I'm assuming drumming up the business, but on actually doing the work on the projects, it sounds like your primary responsibility is taking care of the interview. So doing the really, the the client facing work um, or the storyteller facing work, um, but you also get involved with the editing. Now, uh, I- am I understanding that right?
0: Well, I mean, my, my primary role is still, you know, uh, president and chief bottle washer. I, I mean, I'm doing everything. I'm the only, oh, okay. the only full-time person who is charged with making Acknowledge Media succeed. And while the team is certainly expanding and while I'm, I'm starting to get better about uh, delineating tasks and, and overseeing different aspects, I really, I'm doing new business development, I'm doing operations, I'm running the interviews and I'm overseeing final product. I'm doing sales, I'm doing PR and marketing, um, HR. Yeah, all of it.
1: Yeah, isn't it great to be
0: self-employed? <laughs> I, I love it. I love it.
1: <laughs> Good. Well, I guess what I mean specifically is is in the creation, on the creation side of the project. So um, you taught yourself uh, Premiere Pro, Adobe Premiere Pro. Um, are you getting, you know, really getting in there up to your elbows in the editing? Or are you, are you more overseeing what your editor is doing?
0: It's more the latter. Um, and, you know, I've now been doing this, this work full time for three years. And I am I am actively now trying to extricate myself from needing to be so involved in the mm-hmm. editing. It's it's a poor use of my time with regard to scaling the business. It's not a I don't want to imply that I don't love that work. It's enjoyable. And I, I think I'm, I, I've got a flair for it. But if I'm going to Grow the business. If I'm going to not be a bottleneck, um, then I can't be spending my time doing all of that editing. It's it's too involved and too time consuming.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's you know that's a common refrain in this business. Is you know try to parcel out the jobs that are not going to benefit your bottom line. You know, we all have to figure out. What is attracting us to this kind of work? So, you know, if you absolutely love writing, then you're not going to want to hire an editor to do the writing for you. Or, um, but you also have to see it as a business if if you really want to make it something that's sustainable and that you can grow right. um, and, and scale up. So that leads me to... Um, to the question of how did you decide how much to charge for your services and if you don't mind sharing how much those are um how how do you come up with those numbers and what are those numbers
0: sure so that that was always the million dollar question early on which Mm. is do i post do i put numbers on my website prices or do i not post prices on the website and i was getting advice from all ends um but when I looked at what other people were doing, I was seeing less. Most of the time, people were not posting prices, um, and so that's kind of the route that I went early on. The, the argument being that you don't want to box yourself into a corner. You don't know what um, you know what people's needs are going to be. Every one of these should be custom in nature, and so treat it as such. And that's that's how I started at the beginning. I had some loose. Prices out of the gate. I mean, the very first ones I was giving away, and, and we're talking hundreds of dollars. And then I was doing it for a couple thousand dollars. And then I kind of settled into a nice groove where I was doing them in the in the I think it was like four thousand dollars for an individual, six thousand dollars for a couple, um, and then that varied based upon whether you did. Oh, and then I realized you know these showcase pieces take a lot of time. I don't need to be including them just because. And then I differentiated them from a packaging standpoint, pay more if you're going to do a showcase. Um, but what's happened is, is over time, um, I, I didn't, I didn't stay in that area too long because frankly, that's, that's not sustainable. That's too low Mm. to be doing this. And so I've been moving up. I I call it kind of right correcting. I've been bringing the price level to a place that's more reflective of the work and the quality. Um, is it where it needs to be yet? I don't think so. It's where I'm comfortable being now. I'll share those numbers in a second. But um, I just had a situation the other day where somebody was comparison shopping and they told me, you know, wow, your prices are, are, are really just, they, they're great. They're in line with our budget. We were talking to somebody else who was offering, you know, who was asking $60,000 for the same thing. And the reality is, you know, I thought to myself, well, I'm glad to be coming in lower. But at the same time, $60,000 for a movie, and I don't know what that other person was doing, it's not outrageous. Right. I mean, when when you think of what goes into making a a true documentary film, you know, it can be hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that's
1: probably your little sign like you are not charging. It's it's like when you sell a house and somebody comes in and says, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that you're it's priced so low. I I want it. And then you're thinking, oh, okay, that's a missed opportunity or I'm not I'm not aligning my prices with what the market will bear and what it's really worth, you you know, because it's worth what people value, what what they're willing to pay for it.
0: It's, it's interesting point, too. And I, I think when my prices started to go up was when I realized that the people who I was talking to were in a different wealth class. And and what I mean by that is, early on, I was working with people in my immediate network, for whom even a couple thousand dollars was just a really big lift. And, you know, I, I was having to rationalize why they should spend the money to do this. I had to really sell it. And then I started to, to, you know, be in front of people who would agree to do this work before ever even looking at the price sheet. And I realized that, you know, for me to have three packages that are, you know, six, seven and $8,000, you know, for somebody where that's not even a, a thing, You know, it's I need to have packages at different price points that reflect different possible interests and different possible income levels. I don't want to be price prohibitive for people, but at the same time, I don't want to be so inexpensive that, you know, it it doesn't even feel like anything for somebody. You know, and it gets into the, the whole mentality and psychology of of purchasing, right? There, you know, there are there are people for whom the most expensive level is the level that they want right? Um, And if something is underpriced, then they don't think that it's valuable enough.
1: Exactly. So anyway, so
0: you asked about my different price points. Right now, I offer um, kind of three core products. Um, I talk about them as my narrative, my showcase, and my feature level, the narrative being the one without the showcase piece, the showcase level tier two, which includes the narrative, of course, but then has that additional six to 10 minute showcase piece and then the feature piece being the longer documentary and the narrative they're, they're each priced for the individual or for the couple okay so for uh, for let's start with individuals for a narrative an individual would be 7500 for the showcase it would be eight thousand nine hundred and for the feature it would be 29000 29 thousand and then for a couple the price point changes a bit so for a narrative um, it's eleven thousand two hundred and fifty. For the showcase, it's thirteen thousand three hundred and fifty, and for the feature, it's forty two thousand.
1: Are there any add ons? So, if somebody, um, I know you said, for instance, the feature, you add lots of archival material and you know lots of B roll. Although it sounds like you're doing that, you're doing some of that on the the core package too. Yeah. Or am I confused? No, you're, you're okay. absolutely
0: right. Okay. That that's included in those prices. That you know, one thing I didn't want to do was make it like too a la carte. Um, that begins to get really confusing. and what I found again from this kind of the psychology of buying is that people just want to see a price. It was like the old days, you know buying a Saturn, right No negotiation. you go into the dealership and you know what you're paying and you get it. And I think that's true with this as well. People don't need to know what goes into the sausage. They just want to buy it. Um, but of course there are some add-ons um, and uh, that's always evolving and changing, but some of the common ones are travel, right? If there's there's going to be um, a lot of driving involved in going and meeting with them for a pre-interview and then the video shoot, there's going to be upcharges, supplemental video shoots. Often people want to do an additional half-day or full-day video shoot, um, maybe just for B-roll for their showcase or feature. And so there's additional costs for those. Um, Genealogy modules, Um, you know, we can do – we have kind of a standard genealogy package where we look into, you know, the subjects, parents and grandparents were confirming basic information and coming up with some materials that we can use to confirm and put into the production. But then there's additional, you know, sometimes people just love that part, they want to do a deeper dive. And so that's really kind of ad hoc per per hour. Um, Other charges could be if we know this person just has so much content that it's going to be much longer, right? If, if we get six to eight hours of raw footage of stories, um, you know, that they want those stories, but that, that there's a ripple effect, you know, and for every hour mm-hmm. of additional raw footage, that equals, you know, what, eight hours, more work, 10 hours, more work on the back end. So, um, there's additional costs there. And then also, you know, I, I kind of, you have to be very sensitive with the way you talk about this, but when there's cognition or clarity issues at play, um, that can create additional work as well, and and so you know I think that you need to pay attention to some of those variables um, when pricing it out.
1: If you do end up so you know you're going to have three to four hours of of recording, um, how does it morph into six or eight? Is it just because people say no, we don't want you to leave yet, or no, we want to hire you to come back again because we have so many more stories to tell?
0: Um, I usually have a sense going in when there's going to be. More stories, you know, when it's going to go on the long side. I'm I'm really surprised. I really go in thinking it's going to be three hours, and it turns out to be six hours. Um, but when we're talking and somebody's telling a story, I think it is a cardinal sin to cut them off. It's okay. It's okay to steer. Um, you know, a person finishes a story, and and you come up with kind of a smart segue. You know, well, on that last point, you know, how did you? You know, you kind of bring it back to where you want to go. But if a person is just kind of consistently, um, you know, weaving these intricate yarns and waxing poetic, I, I, who, who am I to cut them off? In particularly, you know, when the kids have said, we want to capture mom and dad's stories, you know, the full breadth of right. stories. And so then it just goes long, yeah. And and I usually let the kids know in advance. Look, there's going to be the chance this is going to go long, and if it does, that could impact um, the pricing here. And I, I usually kind of get that that blessing um, in advance, so they're not caught off guard. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I, I have just one or two more questions about the pricing, um, um, and then I want to talk a little bit about the equipment. So they know ahead of time what the package price is going to be. Um, are they paying? Are they giving you partial payments as you go along? In addition to that question, so when you deliver the product, um, is there a chance for them to request certain edits? And is that built into the price? And then do they pay the final payment when they get the final product?
0: Any more questions you want to ask? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, um, I, so in general, I like to collect about... Uh, on, on these standard packages, about 50% upfront, rather, you know, not 50% when we start with the pre-interview and then the other 50% upon final delivery. Um, I do collect a modest, um, upfront deposit, um, at the time that we sign the agreement, you know, cause often you sign the agreement, but it's not going to start for another 60 or 90 days. Right. And, what what happened early on was I said, great. And then, you know, two months would go by and they would say, you know what, we're going to postpone. And I'd say, well, okay, I was kind of banking on that income. Um, and I said no to other people for that period. So the deposit is is non-refundable after a week. It's about $500 to $1,000 depending upon the scope of the project. But um, A, it allows me to feel comfortable about scheduling time with the videographer and blocking out that that period to start um, it also gives the client a little bit of skin in the game. You know, when you, when you put right. some money down, it, you, it means you're serious about it. So I think that's important to collect the deposit. Then again, about 50% at the, when we start. And then on the back end, um, I do, I, I try to not create opportunities for the client to, uh, edit the work. Right. So there's nothing that states outright in our collateral that, you know, as part of this, you will have editing cycles. And the reason that I say that is, one, because it can create a lot more work and it kind of it almost deputizes them to to get their Mm -hmm. hands dirty. Um, As you know, there's a lot of work which is involved in editing and, and I don't know whether they're going to realize, you know, that what I'm looking for is, oh, there's an error here versus, you know, I feel like the whole motif around dad's, you know, time in the army is right. misplaced and maybe, <laughs> right. So we don't we don't s- say it outright. Um, but when I do deliver the, the, the final package, I'd say, you know what, I would appreciate it if you would make sure to look through this in the next two weeks. And therefore, if you've caught any errors, let me know so that I can get them Changed and corrected, but but it's not at it's not. I'm, I'm not pushing off collecting payment. I collect payment upon final delivery. I'm, I'm it's basically finished. And should I have made an error? Should the team have made an error? Then, of course, I'm going to correct it for them. Then you'll fix it. Yeah, right, absolutely, right, absolutely. When I work with institutions, right, with organizations, unfortunately, you know, that's a different world. They need to have. The right to review and have input. So usually there, there's going to be two iterative cycles of editing.
1: Can you take just a couple minutes and tell us about your equipment setup? And specifically, if somebody is looking at getting into this, so they're, you know, maybe thinking about doing life stories, and they're thinking that they would like to do it with um, with video, um, can you give some advice on what a beginner would need as a um, Kind of to create a minimal minimally viable project yeah
0: so that's
1: and I'm sure that your what you have now is is very different from from what a beginner would uh, start well, off oh yes
0: and no that I mean first of all it's a, the whole concept of minimally viable uh, product is very subjective um, because you can do really wonderful things with an iPhone um, you know and, and, and a good editing a good editing software and a good eye for that, um, you know. A t-
1: okay, I did not expect to hear that. Yeah, no, it's
0: it's true. It's true. A talented a talented editor. I don't believe that the core value that I bring to this process is the technology. Yes, we use very high end equipment and we put together a beautiful final product, but I think that the true value that a competent uh, life story biographer is going to bring is the experience that is required, the sensitivity that's required to understand how to handle a person's life in their hands. You are, you are dealing with a person's most, most fragile and valuable possession, which is their lives, their experiences, their mm. egos. And a, a really talented documentarian who just comes out of uh, grad school who's a whiz with cameras and editing software is not going to have the life experience and the sensitivity to understand how to do that, how a, a, a potential question could be inflammatory for a family and when to edit and when not. Um, that's what I think the true value is that we bring to this process and why it's, it's not for any old videography company. I don't, I don't talk about myself or my business as videography. I, t- I talk about it as legacy preservation, and we happen to do a lot of work in the medium of video. So all of that said, um, I'll, I'll come off the soapbox now, all of that said, um, I, I knew early on that I wanted to have a good high-end product. And so one of the things that was advised, well, the first thing I did was I got rid of my old PC and I bought myself a Mac. If you're doing this work, you want to be playing in the world of Mac. Um, it's just, much more design for the kind of the creative sphere. I use Adobe, uh, the Adobe Creative Suite on my MacBook. Um, Then in terms of the actual video shoot, um, I knew out of the gate that I wanted to use two cameras. Two cameras makes for a much cleaner, seamless edit on the back end. Things that that would have otherwise looked like you edited them with a single camera look like they're happening fluidly. So can't recommend Mm -hmm. that enough. Two cameras. Early on, we were using DSLR, um, which is um, not video. It's more like using a high end camera with a video function. The me- it's, there's more memory. There's some downsides to it. Uh, the memory cards time out after 30 minutes, and so you're constantly starting and stopping. But it created a really rich, rich image with beautiful depth of field. And it just so happened that the person who I was working with out of the gate. He had DSLRs, so that's how I started. I have since moved to high-end video because video cameras are a lot easier to work with. They make syncing files on the back end seamless. Um, it's longer, uh, uh, longer file sizes. Um, anyway, so video or DSLR is something any, you know someone should think about. But what's most important is to have two uh, simultaneously. I think that's critical. You know. Mic setups and audio, that has evolved as well. Early on, everybody had a lavalier mic. Now we have a boom mic that sits above the head of our subjects, and I have a lavalier. Um, We have the Mm. boom over them because we don't, It's it A, you don't have to see the lavalier mic on the subjects, and B, sometimes people fidget, sometimes people are grabbing and moving, and the lavalier will pick that up and it gets staticky and, and makes noise. So we've removed that. I have the lavalier mic because my questions are important enough on the legacy film that we decided that it's worth keeping my voice in. So though I'm never seen, my voice is still high quality on par with the subjects as I'm asking questions. Um, you know, don't ask me about lighting. I don't know a thing about lighting, right? We've got, (laughs) we use really nice big lights that, that can go from natural to tungsten. That's about the extent of my lighting expertise. Um, And, you know, the most important thing is work with professionals that know this stuff. So unless your background is videography and that you're coming to it kind of from that background, and that's where you're really going to want to kind of spend your focus, if you're coming at it from any other angle, surround yourself with people that know this stuff.
1: And you did that from the get go. So when you were still just creating this company, and you weren't, you weren't earning any money from it. From the very beginning, you hired a videographer to to work with you on, on capturing the stories. Is that right?
0: Absolutely. I knew yeah. I could not be an effective interviewer and communicator if I was worried about the video camera. Is the sound coming in? Am I getting an echo? Is the battery dying? Is the file over? No way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really important, I think. Um, especially if you want to have it be at a professional level. You know, I think it's a little bit different if you're, you know, maybe doing volunteer hospice work and, and you want to videotape something for a family. But, but what you're creating are very professional, polished looking, warm hearted, um, poignant life stories. So it's, it's the production value plus the, your ability to capture the stories, which I think is, um, I, I, personally think that's why your business is growing right now
0: (laughs) thank you well i I, first of all thank you so much for saying that i mean it's just hearing that kind of thing is so validating particularly coming out of you know this period of am i doing the right thing and am i making the right choices I'm, i'm starting to feel like i really did make the right call um so thank you um the 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 showcase pieces i didn't have to do early on Um, But as I said before, I was doing them for free as part of the project because I knew that a four-hour, low-edited legacy film was not going to be of interest to anyone other than the family itself. And it it didn't lend itself to marketing. And I figured if I can give people these showcase reels and then they agree to let me share them publicly – not only will they be glad that they have them, but they will become effective marketing tools. And I think they have.
1: And I'm sure that I'm sure at least for some of the people, they feel a little bit like a rock star. Their their video is up there <laughs> for people to see, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, I will tell you, as, a, as an aside, one of my most special uh, showcase pieces that I did recently, um, uh, I filmed the, this gentleman in New York last July, uh, last April, and he's the first. Client of mine that passed away. He died
1: oh. a week
0: ago, and um, and his daughter, who you know contracted me to do it, she sent me a text um, hours after he passed away, and I- I'll read it to you. It, it's it's on my phone right now. Yeah, please do. It says it says, Rich, my dad left his body this morning, and in this most devastating moment, when I can't breathe. I'm thinking about how grateful I am that we have his documentary. Thank you, Beyond, Beyond. And I I, I just get teary-eyed thinking about, I mean, it's the, it's the first time I've lost a client. Um, and I just, I mean, I love this person, but it, what it underscored for me is that the real value of this work, it just, it grows exponentially when the person is lost. And this is the first time I've experienced that. And so, again, it was a really validating moment for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's why we're doing this. Yeah. Well, Rich, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and 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 the listeners and tell us about how you are um, how you're creating these kinds of experiences for the storytellers and for their family when especially when the storyteller is gone. So, um, you're I'm really impressed by your work and, and I am very thankful that you're that you came on to share about it. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, if they want to see some of the work that you're doing, where should they go?
0: They should go to the website. Uh, which is com. That's acknowledge with an A C K at the beginning. And then from there there's a link to our Vimeo site. And the Vimeo site, you know, has a little bit more to see. But yeah, that's about it. Okay. Amy, great. this has been this has been a pleasure for me. Thank you for having me on and, and spending the time and asking such thoughtful questions. This was great.
1: And that does it for part two of our interview with Rich Pold of Acknowledge Media. If you haven't heard the first part, you can find that at thelifestorycoach.com. Look for episode 55. For today's episode, if you want to see links to the things that we've talked about, go over to thelifestorycoach.com and look for episode 56. Thanks for listening. And until next time, go out and save someone's story.